Good morning and uh, welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Akash Pound and I'm very pleased to be hosting today's event in conversation with Andy Street. Andy is the Mayor of the West Midlands, leader of the West Midlands Combined Authority, which is formed of seven individual councils in and around the Birmingham metropolitan area, so also including Coventry, Walsall, Wolverhampton and other places. The Mayor and the Combined Authority jointly exercise a set of powers in relation to transport, housing, skills and other mainly economic functions. We'll be talking about what Andy has done with some of those powers over the rest of this event. Today's event is the first in a series we're going to be holding over the coming months on devolution and the role of mayors. And after nearly two years of online-only events, it's really a great pleasure to be having this conversation in, in person. So, so thanks very much for making it happen, Andy. Um, we even have a small live audience who uh, will hopefully be, be joining in with some questions um, later on in the event. Um, our guest today, Andy Street, grew up in Birmingham, uh, where he now represents. He studied at Oxford, and he then, after graduation, joined the John Lewis Partnership, and I think you worked your way up from trainee at uh, Brent Cross branch of John Lewis, where I used to get taken as a child, up to uh, managing director. And then he stepped down from that role in 2016 in order to, to stand for mayor. Um, he was elected then in 2017 as the, the Conservative candidate by a pretty narrow margin, under 1% of the, of, of the vote. Um, and he was re-elected in May of this year uh, more comfortably uh, with 54% with, with or so of the vote on the second round. Um, so over the next 45 minutes or so, I'll be putting a series of questions to Andy about what he's done in office, the challenges he's faced, and his plans for the future. Um, aside from our um, live audience, um, many people are, I hope, joining us uh, through our live stream on our website. So thank you, hello, to, to everyone who is watching online. Um, if you would like to put a question to the mayor, um, please do so via the Q&A function on Slido. Um, and please, if you don't mind, also say who you are and uh, where, where you're from, so to speak. Um, so I think that's enough for me. Andy, welcome to the Institute. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Akash, for putting this on and indeed bringing us together physically. So I think I'm looking forward to it, but we'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's going to be uh, a pleasant conversation. So um, I'd like to start by um, talking a bit about your role as, as local leader and uh, your relationship, actually, with, with the voters of the West Midlands, because I think it's fair to say voters are typically uh, sceptical about the need for more politicians, more levels of government and so on. And the public in, in the West Midlands were also not really given a choice about whether they wanted a mayor back in 2017. There was no referendum, for instance, as you know, other devolution reforms have, have been preceded by. So what do you say to voters who ask, why did we need this? What is the added value that having a mayor operating at this scale can bring? Yes, it's a question that comes up quite often, this. Um, so the democratic mandate for it, of course, came through the government doing a deal with the leaders of the local authorities. So this wasn't imposed 
the democratically elected leaders all said, yes, we will have this, and then their full councils voted for it. So it wasn't a referendum, but it came through what you might call a more traditional form of democracy in Britain, in that our leaders chose to do this. And the argument's really simple. The argument's about having one person who represents the West Midlands, the sort of accountable person, the person with whom the buck stops. And as David Cameron said, who was Prime Minister at the time of this all being set up, if I want to talk to London, I know very well who to talk to. I'm going to talk to Boris Johnson, who was then Mayor of London. If I want to talk to the West Midlands, there isn't anybody. So it's about one person being that representative, being that champion, being the accountable person. And I actually think it's demonstrated uh, that it's worked in the sense that our authorities have come together and I think we've performed better by working as a group rather than each individual authority being, in a sense, a little on their own. Yeah, so, I mean, you are that, that single point of contact, as you say, for, for, for central government and you're the voice um, of, of the region. So, I mean, to go back to, as I say, the, the, the relationship with voters, you've been elected in a, in a part of the country where... The Conservatives have not always performed that well electorally. I think it's fair to say you've, you've outperformed the party. Um, is that, do you think, because people are voting for you as an individual, kind of in the way that Boris Johnson was elected in you know, a Labour city uh, in terms of London, which is to say, do you think you've done well in spite of rather than because of the colour of your rosette? I think it's two things, actually. So your characterisation of the West Midlands as an area that's not been particularly conservative is, I think, a little inaccurate. If you look at, really, the last 15 years, there's, sort of, there's been a steady swing towards the Conservatives across the region. So if you think back when I first became the candidate, we had only seven MPs in the West Midlands who were Conservatives. That's now up to 14. It's 14 all between Conservatives and Labour across the region. So there's been a very clear swing our way, which did start right back in 05. We only had three Conservative MPs in the West Midlands back in 05. So we've been in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But there is absolutely no question, if you look at the results, the mayoral election result was better than the underlying Conservative performance in the region. And I think it illustrates a point, which I'm sure would be other Metro mayors would say the same thing. There is an element where the voters are voting for an individual, not just for a party ticket. It sort of goes with the first question. If you are the single person, the single point of accountability, people are assessing that person, not just the colour of their rosette. And personally, I think that's exactly how the model should be. And so I think I've tried to reach out, appear to be relatively neutral, not over-partisan, because the role has to be about uniting people, particularly in a region where, at best, you would say the parties are level-pegging. It's not one-party state in any way. Mm. Yeah, and so, I mean, we're going to come on, I hope, in a minute to your relationship with, with central government. But, but on this point, I mean, are, are there ways in which you've deliberately tried to demonstrate the difference between you and the, the UK government in, in policy terms or, or, or other respects? Have you tried to create clear blue water? I wouldn't say it's been deliberate. I think I would say the following, though, that on occasions there will be things where you think your party aren't necessarily getting it right in government, and so you have to stand up for what you believe is right for your region. Mm. And that's the purpose of the mayoral model. The mayoral is about the regional champion 
not the Conservative government's representative in the West Midlands. And, you know, a classic example of that was the time we had all the wretched tiering with the sort of lockdowns last year where I didn't believe the support to the West Midlands economy was appropriate, and you speak up on that. So, yeah, there are occasions that you need to actually say, no, this mm. is the right thing for our region. Perhaps the best example of that, and some will say, I got this wrong, was, of course, the championing of HS2. Controversial issue. A lot of Conservative um, ministers sat on the fence, were not clear what they were going to commit to until the Prime Minister made his choice, where I, I was absolutely clear. There was one interest for the West Midlands to get HS2 built, so of course you champion that in the interest of the region, irrespective of what some members of your party think. Yeah, well, HS2 is in the news, of course, today, and, and, and I do want to ask you about that in, oh, yeah. in a short might. while, yeah. yes. Um, but I think, well, it, it, it relates to what I want to move on to now, actually, which is levelling up. Um, so, I mean, that's a phrase that the government seems to use at the moment um, in connection to almost everything it does. It was even claimed to be the, the, the idea behind the recent national space strategy, for instance. Um, so I guess my question is, and I know you're in touch you know, closely with, with ministers, do you think the government does now have a coherent idea of what it means by levelling up, or is this as I think a lot of people suspect, more of a, just, a, just a convenient soundbite. Um, I think I'm pausing on that because I want to give you a precise answer. So I think the direction of travel, what the Prime Minister wants to achieve, is very clear in his mind. And he's actually been utterly consistent about this. And he said to his party, we are going to do this, even if, let's be honest, some members of the party in the south of England don't quite like it. And I think he came to Coventry and made this big speech. Now, it wasn't full of lots of detail. Everyone would acknowledge that. But in terms of the direction he was taking his party, it was absolutely clear. And I actually have some admiration for that. And he came to Manchester to give the conference speech. And again, he was utterly clear, we're doing this. Then he appoints a very senior minister in Michael Gove, who will influence the rest of government to say, OK, you are now going to flesh that out and we're going to see evidence of it. And we saw some evidence coming forward in the budget. So if you take, for example, the announcement of these big capital investments in transport across different mayoral authorities, that was clear evidence of cash being put on the table. So I think it is being coloured in steadily, but the direction is very clear. But let's also be clear, this isn't a brand new idea. Uh, David Cameron talked when he came into government about rebalancing the economy. It's not good that Britain was so dependent on London as an economic driver. We want our other big regional economies to perform well. And actually what was happening in the West Midlands pre-pandemic is we were doing exactly that. It was the fastest growing place in the UK outside London over the 10 years pre-pandemic, so a full decade. And that was being done by driving a vibrant private sector, getting people trained, skilled for the jobs there. And we actually saw the gap between our average incomes and the London situation closing, not broadening. So it can be done and it's got to be led by the private sector and those investments and then all the skills that come alongside that. It can't just be done by central government investing in public infrastructure, important as that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. I think that's uh, quite a, a, a good summary of, of, of the position and a useful way to move on. So um, we've just actually published on our website um, just yesterday evening a short explainer 
of uh, West Midlands devolution. I'm not sure if you had a chance to, to look at it yet. So I'm now thinking, what on earth is this um, going to say that I haven't seen? Well, um, you can, yeah, I hope you have a chance Hopefully to take a look. I'll be familiar with it, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, do let us know if you think we've got anything wrong. But I mean, the, the part of it I wanted to just draw your attention to and call up on the screen actually was um, an, a, a short analysis we did of um, some key measures of socioeconomic performance. So what this chart shows, I hope people at home can see it as well as those in the room, is um, the performance of the West Midlands area, the, the WMC area that you represent, which is the pink dot, compared to the UK average, which is the 100% line, obviously, um, on various different metrics, with then the different seven local areas shown in grey. And what this shows, in, in a nutshell, is that the West Midlands is behind the UK average on quite a few of the key economic measures, productivity, employment rates, skills, business survival rates, but there is substantial variation within the region as well. Um, so you've talked a bit about the, the national vision of levelling up. What does it mean specifically in, in the context of the West Midlands? Is it just, as you said, about kind of narrowing the gap with the South? Is it about also narrowing the gap perhaps between Solihull and Walsall, to take the two outliers? Um, and which are the particular metrics you think we should be watching so that five, 10 years hence, we can judge whether levelling up has, has worked? Yeah, um, I think if you ask me for one measure that would say whether levelling up has worked would actually be something that's not on here, which is the indices of social mobility. This whole question that says, if you're born in one of the boroughs of the black country, to the first piece, it is likely that your outcome of your life will be reflective of where you start. If you're born in Solihull or Birmingham or Coventry, actually the social mobility indices are better, but nowhere near as good as the south of England. So those, that is probably the single most, most, most uh, determining thing. Now, of course, there's lots of things that influence that. So the hard economic numbers, uh, average incomes, they're all part of that. But the thing I think that will influence it most of all is actually the skills and qualifications levels. And that's why uh, in this whole question about what is levelling up, that's perhaps the chapter that has not yet been written sufficiently. And what are we going to see working with Nadim Zahawis, the new education secretary, actually empowering us to do a lot more of what we've been doing? Because I'm just trying to work on here. Yeah, interesting. Skills qualifications there. That one, where we're still slightly below national average, but we have been making vast progress relative to the national average over the last few years. And that will be the long-term determinant. Okay, so yes, if you're back here in, in, in four years, say, after the next election, that's, that's that the metric. That pink blob needs to be above the national average line. Okay. A few years, so let's just give, let's just give a stat on this, though, because I think this really does matter. Please. Uh, people qualified to level three, at least MVQ, you haven't got a level on it, so it's not clear exactly what you're measuring there. But if you take level three, just in the last year, 70,000 more people across the West Midlands qualified to that level. That will talk to what type of jobs can they get in the future. And it's that that will drive their aspirations and their social mobility. Mm. Okay, thanks. And uh, I mean, on the social mobility point, that's this is a, a in a way, a, a, a sort of experimental bit of analysis we've done. We'll see if we can mm. get some good data on social mobility to add into this. This is very interesting. If I was carbon this, emissions, really interesting that uh, in these most, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, our area is 
performing, it is less carbon intensive than other areas of the country, which Correct. is partly a reflection of, partly a reflection of uh, public transport use. It's also a reflection of dense, sustainable urban areas. And this brings out something that I think has not been said a lot in the recent whole debate about climate change. Actually, the most effective places are actually the urban areas because by their very nature, they're sustainable. So really interesting that your data confirms all that. Yes, but indeed, due that. to yeah, transport and, mm. uh, and I think more dense housing, housing as yep. well. Exactly. Yes, um, and yeah, that's, that's right on this chart. That's mm. the one metric where you obviously actually want to be below the line mm. as, as you are. Um, so, and we may come on to, to net zero and climate policy um, if we have time. Um, so, I mean, you talked about skills and social mobility in, in, in particular. Um, do you feel you have the powers at the moment to make a meaningful difference in that respect. I mean, adult education certainly is, yeah. is one of the things that's been devolved. Really interesting question. So some areas, we definitely have the powers we need. Transport, tick, we're statutorily responsible, very clear. In the area of skills, the truthful answer is some and some. So uh, we have full devolution of our education budget and we can use that and I think we've used it well, just given you some of the data, mm. but we do not have full responsibility. So one thing I hope will come in the levelling up white paper is further moves here. So for example, the career service is, I think, very fragmented how it is run. I would naturally see that as being devolved. If you think of some of the funding for lifetime skills, technical education, that is a lot of government has put a lot of money aside, but it has not yet been devolved. It's done in, again, quite a sort of fragmented way there as well. So we would be saying to Nadim and his team, there are definite steps you can move to a single pot in this area. And of course, when the Shared Prosperity Fund comes, we'll be arguing that should be included in our responsibilities. Mm. Okay, yeah, very interesting. We'll, we'll be watching um, developments, obviously, with the white paper and, and those other announcements. Um, so I want to move on to, to, to look at... Um, well, your budget. So I'll just call up our, our slide, uh, which is from the explainer I mentioned. So the, 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 the combined authority um, <clears throat> yep. is from 2019-20, has a, has a budget yep. um, of, of, you know, on, on paper, quite a sizable amount, over 400 million. The majority of that, over 60%, is from central government Correct. stock grants, which are often tied to specific functions or indeed specific projects where, you know, ministers agree. Um, and you don't have much revenue raising Correct. power of your own. Um, is that a problem? I mean, does that mean that you're really tied to delivery of things that ministers approve of, which some people would say is delegation rather than devolution? Okay. So it's a really interesting question, this. Um, we're not entirely tied to what government are, would ask us to do because the way these grants go is we are making the proposals as to what we want to do. So uh, the power to initiate, to decide what gets put forward is obviously really important. But you are right that government do sign off the huge majority of this investment. And the really mature model is to actually say, no, government ministers, civil servants are not going to do that. We're going to hand over the, uh, a single pot, we call it, of cash to the CA then to decide what we do. 
So I would agree that our devolution model is immature at the moment because we haven't moved to that full devolution. Now, encouragingly though, if we were to look at the budget for 2022 going forward, there's a very big chunk, and I'm sorry to talk jargon, around this uh, city region sustainable transport piece. And that will be largely devolved. So that's a really good example of us taking the next step to maturity. There is also, of course, not quite the question you asked, but there's an obvious point. There's also a question about whether some of the taxation that's raised in the West Midlands should be held in the West Midlands. That's what many countries would do, rather than send it all to London and then us ask to have it back in some form of grants. Again, I would argue the mature model is things like vehicle excise duty, airport passenger duty, could be energy company obligations, all things that are levied locally. And you could even say 1% on VAT, just 1% on stamp duty, whatever you chose to do, you could hold it locally and that would be a truer model of devolution. And as yet, not just in the West Midlands, all of the CAs are exactly the same position. Mm. We've not moved to that maturity. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's indeed the direction of travel that devolution to, say, Scotland and Wales has Correct. taken. They started Correct. basically just dependent on grants, and they've taken on, on tax powers Correct. over time. But you have to remember, this is all very new. This is only set up to actually come into effect in 2017. Uh, so actually... Uh, we're four years on, we're building this sort of spending power. I've just talked about a next big step. So it's not surprising that it's taking a little time. And, uh, you know, our local authorities have been around for 800 years in the case of Coventry City Council. Very, very different maturity. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't, I'm not too uncomfortable about the fact this is taking time. And we frankly got to demonstrate that we can use that cash wisely and actually get better results for the public and I genuinely believe we're doing that. So I think this will only go one way. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the old cliche, devolution is a, is a process, not an event. Correct. Um, but that does, of course, rest on the assumption that you have a pro-devolution government, a pro-devolution prime minister. Yep. Some people would argue that that isn't what we have, that this is a government that's actually quite centralising by its instincts. What, what's your experience? So, let's be clear. David Cameron and George Osborne set all this up. They were huge devolved devolution supporters. Actually, with Theresa May and Philip Hammond, the cash then followed through. That's the evidence of it. What we've seen with this government is there hasn't been more progress yet, but that's entirely understandable. You know, there have been two you know, defining, epoch-defining events, COVID and Brexit. But what you're now hearing from the Prime Minister is an absolute commitment to devolution. It's the way in which levelling up is delivered, and he's put in place... A minister who we know in Michael Gove is a believer and is an incredibly powerful minister. So I think we're sort of ready to go again. And that's why this white paper is so important. Yeah, the white paper that's not going to have devolution in the title anymore, though, as far as we understand. It's having levelling up in the... But you take that as the same I'm thing. I'm not remotely worried because devolution is the way in which levelling up is delivered. That I'm convinced that is where we will, we will get to. Okay, well, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be following that and, and I guess uh, proof will be in the, in the, in the detail. Um, and so in terms of your, um, your views of, of decisions taken by, by the centre, mentioned it already, topical um, issue of, of HS2 reports that the Eastern Leg, which would have connected or would connect if it's built Birmingham with, with Leeds, uh, may not now go ahead. What's your, what's your view of that and, and, and will you be making the case to, to ministers and the PM to think again? Um, so I've spoken to ministers at great length 
about this, and we're waiting for it to come out on Thursday. I do not know exactly what is going to be announced, but you know, it does look as though the Sunday Times had it fairly accurately. Government has, hasn't denied the leak that was in the Sunday Times, so for the purpose of this question, let's assume that is right, but I do not know, to be absolutely clear. And I was a huge proponent of HS2 to be built in full. We know the West Midlands will benefit from that. We can already see that in terms of investment uh, coming uh, through. But the reality is that the economic situation for the country has changed since the decision that was taken in February. So if what the government announced on uh, Thursday is that HS2 is only going to be built on the eastern leg as far as Nottingham, so it's not being scrapped entirely, the story is that it's going to Nottingham. That's what the Sunday Times had, as I say, hasn't been um, uh, denied. In terms of the West Midlands, that would still be a really good outcome because it gives us high-speed links to London, to Manchester and on up the West Coast Main Line and critically East-West Midlands connectivity within the Midlands. So it gives us very large proportion of what we were after. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's then the question of how you get from Nottingham to Leeds. If the proposal is the upgrade of the Midland Main Line, to be honest, that was one of the things that was reviewed back at the end of 2019 on the Okeby review, which I sat on. And again, I would consider, given the situation the government now finds itself in with public finance, this to have been a reasonable compromise if that's what comes to pass. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, so I'm conscious of the time. I want to just ask you... Um, about one other issue, and then I'm going to bring in some questions, okay. both from our online audience and hopefully from some people in the room. So um, just click through to final slide um, I was going to present. So this is just, of yep. course, the region that you represent. Um, and what one can see, as, as already mentioned, is that four out of the seven uh, councils on the combined authority are Labour controlled. Yes. Um, how challenging has it been for you to work across party lines, and it's not just party politics, to work across the inevitable local rivalries about where housing should be built, where investment should go? So um, I suppose the positive take on this, first of all, is that when I started, it was 6-1. It's 4-3 <laughs> um, uh, now, so right. we're making progress. Okay. Which, again, is to your very first question, a sign of the overall move towards the Conservative team in the uh, West Midlands. So this goes right back again to, I think, your first or second question. Um, the role of the mayor is not just to serve the blue councils, it's to bring everyone together. And I think the thing, there is clear evidence that that has happened and everyone has worked together. So if you look at our housing performance, uh, we are on target with our huge housing target, 215,000 homes by 2031, easily the biggest number outside London. We're on target, we've doubled the number of homes being built per year in the last six years, and that has come by people working together. If you look at all the financial decisions we've taken about our investment, they've all been cross-party. So of course there's the little local political rivalries, we have them all the time, it just goes with the territory. But I sort of say, let's rise above that, let's not worry about that, and make sure on the big decisions we're working as one West Midlands team. And I genuinely think that's what's happening. Mm. But do you think in the end, um, this process should end with you and, and other mayors in, in, in similar roles taking on more direct executive decision-making powers, for instance, so that you, know, you can actually yourself decide on housing development, even if well, individual very, councils might disagree, which is where we currently well, are. Well, it's very interesting, this. Um, my answer on that is no, actually. 
um, which may surprise you, because I've told you other areas, I definitely think there should be more devolved power. Um, but actually, on this one, I don't think the answer is the mayor is somehow um, empowered uh, unilaterally. Mm. Because actually, at the heart of how we have made progress on this is the cooperation between all of our councils on behalf of their citizens and the whole notion about planning being local and all the decisions that actually lead to these houses being built, go through the planning committees, all of that is working. I do not believe that would be improved by the mayor having unilateral authority, actually. I believe the mayor's job is to make sure that process of everyone working together for those outcomes works. And there is clear evidence, if you compare the West Midlands with other parts of the country, that we have made that process work. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting answer. I, I wonder if other mayors other might mayors take a different line on that. on that. Yes. But maybe, maybe there's something interesting here. Maybe that map, which shows political balance in the West Midlands, which is ever going to be slow. As I said, 14, 14 MPs on MPs. We are actually very different to most other mayoral areas in terms of political balance that we have. It does force you to think in that collaborative way, and I honestly think that's helped us. Okay, terrific. Right, so yeah, I wanna bring in some questions from the audience. We've had a lot, um, so apologies in advance to those we won't be able to get to, although I think quite a few of them we've already covered, so okay. <laughs> hopefully people are, are, are kind of happy in that respect. But here's one we haven't. So Matt Whitley, uh, who works for Cancer Research UK, um, says, the combined authorities health of the region report last year found there were entrenched um, health inequalities within the yep. region. What role do you see for Metro mayors in improving health outcomes and how does that link yeah. to levelling up? Really interesting, because so there's something here, um, there's something here which enables me to make what I think is an important point. Your questions so far have been very much around the formal powers, the formal budget. And yes, of course, that's important. But the question from Matt points to something else. The mayor can convene people, can bring people together, can challenge other institutions, even where it is not in his formal responsibilities. It's sort of a unique thing about this job. You are enabled to do that. So obviously, on the back of COVID, it was blindingly obvious that there were deep inequalities. But no one had called it out, really honestly. So it was us who stepped forward with other organisations to actually produce this report and say, this situation has got to change. So to be able to use this role to shine the spotlight on something, another brilliant example of this would be homelessness. Mm. Nobody said it's the mayor's statutory responsibility to deliver homeless, to improve homelessness, but we've stepped into it, we've made a demonstrable difference. And so you can use this role. And then in this case, what we've done is we don't actually control many of the levers around health, but that report drew, on, drew out lots of actions that would be taken by all of our partners, the NHS, the police, local authorities, everybody, and we're steadily working through those. Mm -hmm. So the role here is one of enabling, cajoling, convening. It's not the direct responsibility. Yeah, I mean, in Greater Manchester, there is more of a role, isn't there, there is. for the combined authority in NHS uh, yes. commissioning and so on. And others must judge whether that's been more or less effective. <laughs> Not me. Yeah, but I was just going to ask, I mean, is that something you're looking to move towards? No. Is it on the cards? It's not. I don't think any politician in the West Midlands wants to move to that responsibility at all. Uh, so I, I no, one word answer, no. Okay, all right, good to have uh, clear and one word answers. Okay, another question from... Um, Kevin Johnson, not sure from where. Oh, I know. If it's the Kevin, I think it is. We know very well. Okay. Um, okay. So he um, says or asks that your board is considering 
new, age, uh, new arrangements for governing economic growth. Yes. Um, are you content with the way the combined authority, the Midlands engine, local enterprise partnerships and councils um, work on the way that they work on economic development are up to the job of recovery. So that was a bit yeah, unclearly read, but yeah. Is the way that they work up uh, to the job, basically? Uh, so let's be clear, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, the governance structures we had had delivered well. And obviously the local enterprise partnerships who Kevin call out were a critical part of that. Mm. And in the West Midlands, slightly different to other models, they are around our board table. So very, very considerable role that brings the private sector in. But we've obviously had a really big hit from the uh, pandemic and we're now reviewing what is right in the light of the different powers. So LEPs are in a sense less powerful than they were five years ago. Obviously they have less cash. Mm. So we, we are needing to, straight answer to Kevin's question is we are looking to streamline the responsibilities so it is exactly clear who is responsible for what and there is one plan that we are working to. So he is right in saying we need to update those arrangements. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Um, all right, another question from uh, Maggie Brown. Um, who asks, how big a blow was the Channel 4 decision not to relocate any of its functions to Birmingham? None of its functions. Well, it was a blow. So this was, uh, let me get this right, this was November 2018. Uh, so if you look at the West Midlands economy, actually in 2018, it was performing really well. As I say, 10 years of leading growth. But the creative sector has been a weakness in the West Midlands economy for that period. Mm. So we wanted to get after Channel 4 because we believe this would be a sort of dynamo on the side of that particular sector. So it was a big blow. But let's be honest, I think the number of jobs that are being relocated to Leeds, congratulations to them, is quite small. So it needs to be kept in proportion. What we decided we would do on the back of that loss is really think more about how else we were going to really energise that sector organisation that's called Create Central, which exists purely to stimulate that sector is there. And we're now on the verge of a much bigger success with the BBC. So actually, out of that adversity, we've come out stronger. And there's quite an important lesson there that sometimes losses can be turned into successes if you think how you're going to respond. <laughs> OK, great. Um, all right, I'm going to take one more question now from uh, the online audience and then... After that, I will be going to our, our live audience for a couple of questions too. So this one um, is from someone anonymous. Um, it builds on the conversation we were having earlier, actually. So the person asks, is the centrally administered levelling up fund, a flagship of the government, um, a strong indication that the Boris Johnson administration is not pro-devolution and that devolution and levelling up are not one and the same. Okay, so um, you could argue that over that. Uh, but I think, to be honest, that was put in, uh, it was announced when uh, budget in 2020, if I remember correctly. And I think it was a sort of what you might call an early, immediate, and probably sort of most straightforward way of doing things. I don't believe it is the best way of delivering levelling up, uh, because obviously it's about individual projects that don't necessarily tie together into an overall strategic plan for a region. But I've got no difficulty to the fact that that was a relatively quick way of doing things. It brought about a lot of great ideas coming forward. If I look at what's happened in Wolverhampton as a brilliant example of that with the uh, new college campus being supported, good stuff. Uh, but it certainly isn't 
what we need to get to to have full devolution, and it certainly isn't the best way of driving the regional economic recoveries. But it was absolutely right as an indicator, a quick response, a quick way of getting some projects kicked off. Mm. But in the long run, you don't think that's the right model? I don't believe it's the right model, no. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I was, I was struck looking at some of the announcements in uh, the, 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 the spending review and budget just recently. Um, the, some of the very small local projects um, that may well be important for yeah. local economic performance of, of particular towns and, and places across the UK. But it just struck me to be quite odd for ministers or officials in Whitehall to be deciding on things like particular roundabout renovation or even things like funding the, the, the community buyout of a, of a local pub and so on. Um, that kind of thing does not strike me as a devolving uh, mentality. I think that's right. But we all understand why it needed to come on the back of the pandemic uh, challenge, um, the need to get energy into growth locally. And so that it was, it was the right thing to announce back in 2020. It is, I mean, if I say only four billion for the whole country, and if you think of the individual transport fund was a billion just for us, mm. you can see obviously where the balance is going. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. So uh, questions from the audience. So who is first up? If you obviously just want to say who you are as well. I know who you are. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm Jess Sargent. I'm a senior researcher at the IFG. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit of a question about both mechanisms for coordinating with the UK government, but also with other metro mayors, um, and whether you think that they are currently sufficient, kind of what contact do you have them? Do you feel like you're informed um, in what they're doing um, and kind of coordinating those sort of areas? And do you think that actually there could be some benefit to slightly more formalised structures like there is for the four nations of, of, of the UK, or do you think the current way of doing things is sufficient? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, uh, let's start with the coordination between mayors. I think that works pretty well. Uh, there's been good um, informal arrangements. We call it the M10, where the group come together. Our chief executives are always together. So, there's a lot that binds the mayors together, even though cross-party, uh, because the issues are very similar, actually. So, I think that I, I don't feel in any way in need of anything further there. That works well. I would like to see some formal structure with central government, though. I mean, there's lots of informal structures, and everyone, all the mayors will have their way of getting information, da-da-da, and Robert Jenrick was particularly good at sort of playing us all in as a group. Uh, but I do think you are right that some sort of regular occasion where um, there's a formal structure to the conversations would drive this agenda forward, yeah. Okay, thanks, very interesting. Um, one more question from uh, another of my colleagues. Thank you very much, Andy, for your, your presentation and remarks today. My name's Alex Nice. I'm a researcher at the Institute for Government. Um, Boris Johnson indicated in the summer that uh, there may be a new wave of devolution deals with counties, and yes. perhaps in the future there may be more deals with other cities yes. uh, to create mayors. What recommendations do you have to local authorities in negotiations with central government on devolution deals to get most, the most out of them? What, where should they focus their efforts? And uh, how do you squeeze the most concessions from central government? I don't think it's about that. I'd give one piece of advice to local government is um, make sure you really want to do this. Don't do it just because there's a little bit of cash on the table. 
you've actually really got to think through how it will change your governance structures, who will be responsible for what decisions, and make sure you're comfortable with those consequences. Don't just come to it as a sort of um, uh, financial chasing piece, squeezing money out, because that will be transactional, it will pass. This is really about, are you up for the change in structures that this brings about? Great. Okay, um, so um, I've got a couple more questions for you. <laughs> I've obviously you, been too swift in you've answering. Been, <laughs> you've been admirably concise and straight to the point, which is, which is great. Um, so, question on a, on a different kind of topic to the ones we've been talking about. The government is um, legislating to change the electoral system oh, yeah. for mayoral elections. Yeah. So yeah. for those who don't know, at the moment, there's a preferential system where people get to rank a first and second preference. Second preference votes are reallocated from the um, eliminated candidates. Um, they're proposing to go for a first-past-the-post system, in other words, where whoever gets the most votes in the first round is elected, which I think the Conservatives calculate, not necessarily in the West Midlands, but in some places, would increase their chances of yeah. winning. Certainly, I think, in Cambridge, if that had been the, the system this year, the, the Conservative candidate would have won rather than lost, or possibly Bristol, one of those two. Um, what's your view of that reform? Um, <laughs> my view is, um, I'm not remotely fussed, um, I don't spend my time worrying about the electoral process, believe it or not. Um, so uh, I'm sorry to be unemotive about it, but uh, it would have made zero difference in the West Midlands in both 2017 and 2021. I think actually the difference in 2017, which was much closer to election, 6,000 majority after the first round, 4,000 after the second round, even though there were about 180,000 votes to be redistributed. Mm. So it, we did not have the same experience as elsewhere. And actually, there's part of me that says, uh, if you want to be a representative for the whole place, to force the system to get to over 50% is quite a good way of going. Uh, but I'm not remotely fussed. <laughs> Do you want to expand upon that? No, I've said it. Because <laughs> it, makes, it makes no difference to us at all. The <laughs> obvious argument, though, is the British system is first past the post for everything else. People are very used to that. It forces decisions. So why do we think that this situation should be different? But uh, no, I'm fairly agnostic about the whole thing. Okay. We've made it work, whatever. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, thanks for answering that. Um, okay, well, one other, one other theme that you've, you've touched upon, but we haven't gone into in detail, is uh, climate policy. Yes net zero objectives. Mm. In fact, the first time we, we yep. met, although yep. that was over Zoom, was Correct. speaking at an event on this very subject. Yes. So what do you see as the, the Metro Mayor I, role in this I'm space? I'm really pleased we've made time huh. for this question because, um, i just give you a bit of context. You said quite rightly in your introduction, primary powers are over transport, housing, skills, the economy, spot on. Citizens are actually now saying, aha, and this was very clear in the last election, but the other thing the CA should have a responsibility around is climate change. And it's very clear that there are some levers that Metro mayors have that can contribute directly to this, and there are some areas where we would like to have more levers. And that's why I was up at COP last Thursday on what they call the City and Regions Day, making this very point, that whilst there are lots of global discussions about the goal, actually you can look to your cities and regions to answer 
how this is going to happen. And remember that slide that showed that cities are, by their very nature, sustainable places. And if we take policy areas like Brownfield against Greenbelt, we know where that comes in the climate change piece. So some of our existing policy areas impact this. Biggest impact, of course, is transport. A third of the emissions in the West Midlands are from transport. If you provide the public transport, get people out of their cars, make sure the public transport is green. So that does mean our hydrogen buses in Birmingham, our electric buses in Coventry, the fact that we've got, um, uh, uh, the fact that we've got electric trains, uh, battery trains, hydrogen trains being made in the West Midlands, all this is relevant to it. And we are obviously now spending billions of pounds on greening our public transport. That will have a direct impact on that. And I should be held accountable for how well we do that. But if you then look at housing, we've already talked very briefly about the whole brownfield piece and with the contribution there. But the other bit where mayors can step forward is this whole question of retrofitting. Because we've got to demonstrate that this can be done at scale in a region. And we, we're moving to is what we call demonstrator neighbourhoods, where we will take a, a good number of homes and do them in one batch rather than the previous ways of government thinking individual grants for individual places. That inherently is inefficient, whereas we can demonstrate we can bring efficiency, we can train the people in the skills here. So we're paying for boot camps for people to get the retrofitting skills. So honestly, this is obvious, there is mountains we can be responsible for here, and I think it should be one of the key things in our uh, mandate going forward. Okay, it's going to be a really interesting area to watch. Um, great. Okay. Well, that takes us pretty much to the end of our time uh, together. So um, just like to, again, say thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a, a really interesting conversation and um, hopefully um, interesting for all those watching. Um, thank you to everyone who, who has joined. Um, video and audio recording of this event should be published on our website within the next 24 hours. Um, quick plug also for our um, next devolution event, which is tomorrow morning actually um, with John Swinney, the Deputy First Minister of Scotland. That will be at 11 a.m. Unfortunately, this that will be an online-only event, but uh, please do tune in. Um, and um, I think that's pretty much all for today. So thank you, Andy. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye from the IFG. Thank you.